Could you take uh, your Bibles? This is the last passage in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 6 and open to verses uh, 11 through 18. Galatians 6, 11 through 18. And as you're turning there, let's bow in prayer. Let's pray. Father, this has been a great morning just to uh, sit back and reflect on what you have done for us. Chance for us, God, to even sing back to you what you mean to us. And I just pray that, Father, as you look down on our little congregation here, I pray you're pleased. I pray that, um, Father, when you see your sons and daughters here, I pray that, God, you are, um, you really are honored by what, the way we live our lives and the way we worship you. I just pray that, Father, that we are a blessing to you as well. Father, one, one big prayer request. This uh, final passage is, it's difficult. It's very difficult. And I pray that you would make sense out of it for all of us. Give me clarity of speech. Give the listener uh, the ability to discern truth and um, use it, God, in our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you, I know this might sound like a strange question, but I think all of you have. Have you ever wanted to secretly attend your own funeral? Have you ever wondered who would show up? Would they cry? Yes. Yay, I got an honest answer. Thanks, Trent. That's great. He would like to go to his own funeral. Have you ever wondered if people really would care? It's funny, after you do a number of funerals, you think about what songs you'd like to have sung at your funeral. You think about what the message you'd want, you know, preached at your funeral. And you'd wonder if anybody really would show up. It's kind of creepy thought, I know. But did you know that God wants you to die every day? Actually, one of the funniest stories in American literature is the scene when Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn actually walk in on their own funeral. Mark Twain writes, None could remember when the little church had been so full before. A moving hymn was sung, and the text followed, I am the resurrection and the life. The minister related many a touching incident in the lives of the departed. The congregation became more and more moved as the pathetic tale went on, till at last the whole company broke down and joined the weeping mourners in a chorus of anguished sobs the preacher himself giving way to his feelings and crying in the pulpit. There's a rustle in gallery, which nobody noticed. A moment later, the church door creaked. The minister raised his streaming eyes above his handkerchief and stood transfixed. First one and then another pair of eyes followed the ministers. And then almost with one impulse, the congregation rose and stared while the three dead boys came marching up the aisle. Tom in the lead, Joe next, and Huck, a ruin of drooping rags sneaking sheeplessly in the rear. They had been hid in the unused gallery listening to their own funeral sermon. It would be creepy to walk in on your own funeral sermon. In a strange way, however, if I look back on my own life, I, I have attended my own funeral numerous times. And it's always a strange and weird experience. People who are your friends talk about the person you used to be. Did you ever have that before? Some really miss the old you. Others are glad he's dead. Chris, you thought you were so cool back in the day. Remember, we'd go out and we'd drink all night. Remember those days? 
I miss that guy. Others are like, that guy was a complete jerk. It's weird to remember who I used to be before I died, but boy, am I glad I died. If you've never really attended your own funeral, it may mean that you've never really died. And if you haven't yet died, you may be spiritually dead. Christianity is a very strange thing. It's an ongoing life of dying. It's death. That's why the cross is the symbol of our faith. A cross is an implement for capital punishment. That's really what it is. And that's how Paul is going to end his book, focusing on the cross, bringing us back to where everything must come to to die in order for you to have a new life. The title for this last message is Funeral for a Friend. And that friend is you. Here, I'll show you. Let's start in verse 11 of chapter 6. Paul writes, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised, that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even the Israel of God. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. That's the end of the book. It's been a very interesting book for me, and I think for a lot of people they've said it's really made things clear. Verse 11 begins in a strange way as he ends. He says, see what large letters I write as I write to you with my own hand. may seem rather unimportant, like, oh, it's just kind of an odd tidbit that Paul's saying he wrote this letter with his own hand and you can see such large letters but reading between the lines it says an awful lot Paul wrote this book himself normally he would dictate his books to somebody else normally he'd have somebody copying the words he'd say writing it in very fine script and then he would send that letter to the churches but not this one it was too important it was a matter of urgency. He didn't have time to mess around. So even though he had bad eyesight, earlier it said he had bad eyes. A couple of places in the New Testament, it alludes to his ability not to see too well. Even though he couldn't see too well, he couldn't be stopped from writing this letter. It was urgent. You've had that feeling before when you had to text somebody right away or write a letter. Because it's inside of you. You have to let it out. For Paul, it was like a fire. And that's really what this book is. It's an impassioned plea to a group of people Paul dearly loved. A group of people named the Judaizers, we've talked about this a hundred times, we're trying to get them to go back into the law. And Paul's saying, no. It will destroy you to go back to that religious way of living. Those Mosaic codes. We've talked about this a lot. 
And so we've come to the end of his letter. And the way you could say this last part, it's the bottom line. It's the bottom line of the, the letter. Have you ever had a conversation where you're giving someone advice? They come over and they sit in your living room or they sit in your office and they want some counsel and they want some help. And after spending an hour beating your head against the wall, reasoning with the person you love, and after all the sound arguments you give them lay flat, you look at them in the eye, you put all your books down, you look at them in the eye, you go, here's the bottom line. Are you ready? Kind of tired of all this argument. Here's the problem with you. And then you just unload your heart on them. Sometimes I can't stand it when that happens to me. I'm trying to be a very, you know, um, stoic pastor who is listening with very... Oh, very, you know, less emotional point of view. And then what they tell me, I just can't take it anymore. And I say, you know what, let's just stop it. You know, you're just, you are just a fool. Have you ever said that to anybody? I hate it when I say that, but I can't help it sometimes. That's what this book is. Paul has hit the bottom line. He's done. He's done just reasoning. And here's the bottom line. Actually, the bottom line is that common sense human part of the issue. He's not going to beat around the bush, friend to friend, heart to heart. The bottom line is the Judaizers and the people who were leading the Galatians astray, they just simply, here it is, they just don't want to die. They don't want to die. Did you know nobody wants to die? No one wants to die. And that's the bottom line. Actually, that's the bottom line of all of life. You don't want to die. Dying is not fun. But the truth is it's necessary if we're ever going to have a real life with Christ. It's necessary. You may be reading this and hearing what I'm saying, saying, I didn't, I didn't see that. It says nothing about them not wanting to die. Where does it say they don't want to die in this passage? Well, as we go through it, it's going to be very obvious. In all honesty, whenever you come across any legalistic person in the church, whenever you come across a cantankerous person in the church, when you ever come across a smug, judgmental person in the church, they are, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty sure bet they've never died before. Christianity is death. It's death to your old self. It's death to your old way of life. You see, Jesus wants to come into you and make a home with you. He said it often in the book of John. I want to come and make a home with you. I want to abide in you. And my Father wants to live in you. He wants to come and make a home. And the only way he will make his home where he will set up permanent residency is by changing you. Have you ever had someone come stay at your house for a while? Sometimes it's hard. Some people are really, e really weird. Some are easy. I mean, some people are easy. They just stay out of your way. But then there's those people that question everything you do. Why, why do you let your kids eat this for dinner? You know, it's not good for them. You know, they're watching an awful lot of electronic devices. You're going to let your kids watch all those electronic devices? And the shows you let them watch. What? Why do you got this color wallpaper and why do you paint? That's kind of weird. Did you ever have somebody just be honest with you like that? Or they, they come out and they say, you know, your bathrooms stink. Like those kind of people, you just don't want them hanging out around your house too long. You just don't. 
Those kind of guests can be annoying. They're messing in your business too much. They're too much in your business. And Jesus, when he takes up residence, he wants to mess with your business. All of it. All of it. You will start questioning why you do what you do. He'll start telling you some parts of you stink. For many people, however, they would rather silence Jesus and have, and have to give up and have to give up things in their life. They don't want to give up what the flesh craves. The old sinful nature won't let things go. That's the problem with the Judaizers. The Judaizers, they love their flesh. Just listen to them, verse 12. First thing it says, those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. They want to make a good impression. These leaders still want to be accepted by the Jewish community around them, the one they left. If they could get the Gentiles to be circumcised, it would prove they still are loyal to the law, and they want to be accepted by those who are still loyal to the law. So they're seeking acceptance. That's what they want. The flesh craves acceptance from others craves it like you wouldn't believe i want to be liked that's what acceptance is verse 12 he keeps saying however the only reason they do this meaning they want the these gentiles to be lawful or circumcised the only reason they do this is they want to avoid being persecuted for the cross of christ they want to be comfortable They did not want the flack. They didn't want the trouble that came with being sold out for Jesus. They liked the ease and comfort of the life they grew up in. They love the way they used to live. And to be fully committed to Jesus, man, I'm going to receive some problems with that with my old friends. My grandma won't like it. So the flesh seeks acceptance, comfort, having things the way they've always been, and... Verse 13 says, not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. They want praise, really. Hey, look at these guys. Really, they want you to look. We got, we got all those Gentiles circumcised. They're obeying the law. See, so see how they want to receive praise. Not just acceptance but, or comfort, but praise from others. They want others to be wowed by them. That's the flesh. If you look closely at this list, it matches 1 John chapter 2, 15-16, which talks about the heart of a worldly man. The heart of a worldly man has lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Same stuff. Acceptance, comfort, praise. It's funny. Go to the book of John chapter 9. At the beginning of John chapter 9, it has the title in most Bibles. It says, the healing of a man born blind. A guy was blind, and he couldn't see, and Jesus came up and healed him. And this is in the synagogue. The Pharisees weren't happy. If you get to around verse 13, it says the Pharisees start to investigate the healing. They go to the parents. The, they ask the parents, who healed your son? And in verse 20, look at verse 20. Actually, start in verse 18. The Jews still did not believe 
that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. So they sent for the guy's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, you know, we don't know. Verse 20, uh, keep going. Oh, ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. And verse 22 gives you kind of the inside scoop of why they answered like this, because they knew who healed him. His parents said this because they were afraid. They were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. There's the problem. That's the problem with the Pharisees. They didn't want to be put out of community. They were scared to death. They didn't want to die. They loved their old life. And they were scared how those they used to run with would view them if they quit obeying the law. You understand this. You understand this better than anybody. If you let Jesus come in and change those things in your life, those things that the rest of the world views as acceptable and pleasing, that's comfortable to you, that's praiseworthy, if you change those things, if Jesus comes and lives in you as in your house, and he says, I don't like those things about you, and you change them, people may no longer associate with you. They might put you out, as it says in John 9.22. You'll no longer be included. You may even be forgotten. No one likes to give up the life they grew up in because it feels like dying. In fact, this feeling, this internal soul death, when I, when I stop having to live for acceptance, comfort, and praise. This is the real death. Listen to how Paul says in verse 14 of Galatians 6. Verse 14, Galatians 6. May I never boast, meaning this is, I am not going to boast in those things that make me accepted or comfortable or praiseworthy. I'm not going to boast in that. May I never boast except in one thing, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why, why does he boast in the cross? Why is that his only area of boasting? The only thing he's going to take pride in, or the only thing he's going to run, or as the song says, cling to. It's the only thing he's going to cling to. Why? Because through the cross, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is why he wanted the cross. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The cross works both ways, if you notice. First of all, it says the world's been crucified to me, meaning the world and its desires no longer have a pull on me. They aren't grabbing at me. They aren't, they aren't consuming my thoughts and my tastes and my opinions. They don't grab me. But it's also got a, a second way it works. Not only is the world crucified to me, but I'm crucified to the world. In other words, I don't, I don't need their acceptance anymore. As I researched the word crucified, I came across this definition. Um, it's staru is the Greek word. And in um, 
A dictionary said this. It will shake you to the core if you think about what it says. Literally, the word means to nail a person to the cross. That's what it means. Then he goes, the writer goes on to say, metaphorically, however, the way it's used is to crucify the flesh with its affections and lusts, is to put them to death through the faith and love of Christ. Paul's love and regard for the crucified Christ is so great, it's so great that the world had no more charm for him than the corpse of a crucified malefactor would have. Nor did he take any more delight in worldly things than a person expiring on a cross would take delight in the objects around him. Think about if you were dead on a cross. You are dead, dripping blood on a cross. It's you. Then you breathe your last. Your head hangs, your hands go limp. Let's say all of a sudden, all of these things that tempted you in life were paraded before you. You're hanging on the cross, dead. Blood's flown out. But all these tempting things are being paraded before you. All of a sudden, somebody drives a $100,000 Lamborghini and parks it right by your bloody foot. And blood drips from your toe onto the front of a white Lamborghini. Somebody is holding the keys up to you saying, this can be yours. How do you respond on the cross? Well, what do you mean? I'm dead. Exactly. That's what it means to be crucified. You're dead. You're dead to needing to be accepted. You're dead to always needing to be comfortable. And you're dead to needing people's praise. You're dead. You're crucified. That is the way the lusts and desires of the world need to become to you. I know it's hard because this world is so enticing. I know that. I personally love my old life. I love it. To say that it wasn't enjoyable would be a lie. I love it. But to take Jesus serious, all the ambitions and dreams of that old life must die. And you know what? When they started dying, my friends thought I was crazy. They thought I was nuts. Man, you, have, you, you had everything in front of you. You had that life to live. And now you're going to give all that up? You know what it feels like when you start giving all that up? It feels like you're dying. Luther called this feeling. The feeling of the presence of death is what he called it. He said this is the real dying. He puts it like this. He says the real dying is the real sting of death was precisely in the way it hits us in soul and spirit. Natural death, which is separation from the body, is simple death. It's really kind of simple death. But to feel death, that is the terror and fear of death, this is indeed the real death. Without fear, death is not death. It is sleep. Another person, as I was reading some of this, calls this childish death or animal death. It's the way an animal dies. It's really not that bad compared to real death when you have to die to your ambitions and dreams. That's real death. I got on talking to a friend this week who said he had a mild heart attack, and he said it wasn't as bad as you think. It goes quick. If I was to go this way, it wouldn't be too bad. 
But the deadly death is the one that includes yourself as you live. Now that's hard. Let me show you what I mean. Go to the book of Luke. Chapter 6. Jesus explains it. Luke 6.22. This is, uh, in, the, in Matthew you have the Beatitudes, blessed are those. This is Luke's version of the blessings that you receive. It starts in verse 20. It's the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew. But then he gets to verse 22. And he's going to explain what real death tastes like. And just listen. Blessed are you, so Jesus is saying, God's blessing, really His grace is going to be poured upon you. And that's what we've been wanting this whole time. Blessed are you when men hate you. Man, I hate to be hated. Have you ever really been hated? It's weird to be a pastor because it's more obvious kind of role when people hate you. But sometimes people look at you with an eye that they hate you. It's strange. I hate being hated. He keeps going and he says, when they exclude you, oh, I want to be along. I want to be part of the in-group, the in-crowd, the fun people at work that get to go to all the ball games, that go to the bar, that the cool, popular group even at church. I want to belong. This is saying, you know, blessed are you if you're doing it for the Christ's sake when people exclude you. But that hurts. I know. That's like, it's like death. goes on and Jesus says, blessed um, are you when people insult you. Boy, if we really took that to heart and we obeyed, as Proverbs says, a wise man looks past insults, we wouldn't really have that many problems, but we get insulted very easily. Sometimes, however, we're insulted for the wrong reasons, but when we're insulted for the right reasons, Jesus said, you know, God's going to pour his blessings on you. Blessed are you when people reject your name as evil. It's funny because sometimes I'll, like I like to be on Facebook as a pastor so I really know what you're up to. That's why I'm on. I'm, I'm prying. So you think you're getting away with things. You're not. But every once in a while, somebody from my past will, like from college, will say, Chris Weeks, I haven't heard your name in 20 years. What are you up to? And then I will tell them, I'm a pastor. Go to my, you can see my blogs, my sermons, you'd love them. And some people see my sermons, and I'll never hear from them again. Huh. I was really good buds with them before. Why don't they really call me anymore? And he says, all of these things, all of these things are a blessing if you do them for the Son of Man. All people, everybody who's been born, strive their whole life to prove and make a strong case that I am a great person. I really am something. To lose that position in the eyes of the world is scary. To have people think you are not as important or worthy of recognition, that's death. It's hard. But Jesus says, don't run from this. If you look in verse 23, he says, don't run from this kind of death to the soul. But rejoice. 
Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. Why? We go back to Galatians, the answer is so simple. It is so simple. Why should I rejoice when I die? When I feel this bad, why should I rejoice? How can I be happy when I lost myself? Why should I value soul death? Why do I need to die? It's so simple. It's so simple. Listen to verse 15. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Here's the point. Here's why you need to die. Because, it's very simple, resurrection, new life, new creation demands death. Resurrection literally means to have new life out of dead life. A person is dead and they walk. And people are like, that's crazy. It is. Jesus was dead for three days and he walked. If you want resurrected life, not, you know, not singing songs loud like some, what some people think resurrection life is. Resurrection life is having the life of grace where all of a sudden, when Jared talked about the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control just come out of you, you have to first die. Because those things that are just natural are from God's heaven. They're resurrected life. If there is no death, there is no new life. You can't manufacture it. This new life, being a new creation, is what Paul is calling us to. That's the bottom line. That's always the bottom line. Listen to verse 15 again. Neither circumcision, that means obeying the law, nor uncircumcision, being proud that I don't obey the law. It's not an issue of pride. Those things mean nothing. What counts is a new creation. God wants me to live as a new, brand new person where the old is gone. How does that happen? There's a parallel verse. Look at chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 6, it says the same thing, but it tells you the mechanics of how to become a new creation. Chapter 5, verse 6, it opens the same way. If we're in Christ, neither circumcision, that means the law, nor uncircumcision, being proud that you don't obey the law, has any value. That means nothing, just as we said in Galatians 6. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. That's how a person becomes a new creature, faith. Taking the promises of God by faith and living in them. One writer said about faith, the difference between living by the law and living by faith is that obtaining righteousness that comes by faith is not like accomplishing anything, but it's like dying and coming back to life. It's not the attainment of a long-sought goal I've been working towards, but it's like falling in love. It's different. Falling in love is different than earning a paycheck. It's different. You, when you really fall in love, you look at that person from across the room and something happens to you on the inside and you can't explain it. You didn't earn that feeling. It just happened to you. It starts bubbling up on the inside where it makes you do things you would never do. It's funny when I was a young guy, I was about 24 at the time, I 
I liked this girl in Cleveland, but she lived 20 miles away. And one night, it was, I was supposed to have a date with her. And one night, my dad said, hey, Chris, you got that date in about an hour? Yeah, but Dad, we're watching this great Ohio State game. I really, I want to watch the end. He goes, Chris, you don't like her then. I go, what do you mean? He goes, if you really liked her, you would have been gone a long time ago, and you've already left. I said, what do you mean, Dad? That's kind of mean. He goes, nah, really, you don't like her. I said, you think so? He goes, yeah, you don't really like her because you really don't want to get off the couch for her. I said, you think so? He goes, yeah. So I called her up that night, and I said, really, I can't date you anymore. I know I was kind of a weird guy, but then I met my wife, Michelle, and I'm telling you, one time we, we got to drive to Kentucky from Chicago to go to a wedding, and it was like a blizzard, and the weather said, get off the road. I didn't even think about it because I was driving on the road with her. One time, I drove over a ice road, and I did two 360s, landed in the side. I just pulled the car back up and kept going because I'm talking to Michelle. I'll do anything with her crazy what you do when you fall in love when the spirit of god enters into you you already accomplished everything because christ is in you the one who fulfilled the law perfectly so i no longer feel like i have to fulfill the law i'm alive now i just do because i've already done everything that's what faith is it's new life and I really don't care what people think anymore. It's odd. I don't know how to explain it. Faith is driven by the same internal urge and love for God. Faith is having the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you. The one who perfectly pleased the Father lives in you. Everything that needs to be done to please God has already been done by Christ who's living in you. So there's simply nothing to do but believe. That's it. That's why Galatians 5.6 is so simple. For in Christ neither circumcision, working like crazy, nor uncircumcision, being proud that I don't have to work like crazy, it means nothing. Why? Because I, I have him who's in me, who's love, and I'm just expressing my faith through love. I like what one writer says, grace says believe it, and when I believe it, everything is already done. Why work when you've already obtained what you have been working for in the first place? The reason God wants you dead, the reason he wants you dead is so he can bring you back to life. That's the reason he wants you dead. It's interesting how Paul ends this. He says, peace and mercy, it's a final closing benediction. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to Israel of God. Israel of God I'm not going to get into the complications of it, but the Israel of God are the Jewish believers of God. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. This is kind of ironic. This is an ironic statement. All through the book, all through the book, the Judaizers want the Gentiles to get circumcised, to receive a mark to prove their following. Paul is saying, I have my marks that I'm Christ. It's called suffering. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, be with your spirit, brothers and sisters, amen. Have you ever died? That's the last question. Go to the last slide. Have you ever died? I, I die. I can't even tell you how many times I've died. I remember the very first time I died, it was on a highway where I gave my life up to Christ. 
I said, take it. I'm making a mess out of it. Take it. I remember after I gave my life up to Christ, I was working under a boss that lied. He was a liar. And I, I never confronted him before, but after I was alive, I had to confront him. And that boss threw me out of my job. I lost my job. And I can remember I had a company car. I had to hand my company car in, so I didn't have anything but a 10-speed bike. And I got a new job, and it was 10 miles away on my 10-speed bike. I can remember riding my bike saying, I've always dreamed of being a rich businessman, and now I'm riding a 10-speed bike at the age of 23 to a landscaping job where I'm going to go pull weeds. I died that day. But I also had new life that day. I remember one time when I decided to go to Moody Bible Institute to study the Bible, and I was talking to my Catholic grandfather, and he kept saying, I was a fool. I used to kowtow to my grandfather. I remember that day my old self died, and I said, but I believe the word of God, Grandpa. I'm going to learn it. I died that day. When my friends called me to go to the bar a couple years after I saved, and I said, I can't. Not only is Moody not allow it, but I don't want to because all you guys do is drink kegs of green beer. I don't want to go. I said, what's wrong with you? Are you one of those guys now that stands in the corner and yells at people saying they're going to hell? Not quite that extreme, but I died that day because I used to really love that. It's funny, I die every time that my kid wants me to do something and I'm too lazy and I realize I've got to love him, so I die that day. I die every time somebody comes and asks me to go to the hospital to pray with somebody who's dying. i got to tell you, I don't like the hospital. But I know they would be blessed, so I die that day. I don't necessarily want to read the Bible sometimes or pray, because prayer is weird, because when you pray, there's nobody there. But I know it's the greatest thing to do, so when I pray, I die. To my common sense. I die that day. I die every day. I die to wanting to be rich. I have to die to that. I die to comfort. Sometimes people in this church need me. I die to that. I die to praise. Sometimes even I'll go online and I'll share my opinions and people don't like it, but if I think it's truth, I'll share it anyway, and I die that day. I just try to be truthful. I die. Have you ever died? Have you ever died when you're insulted, where you feel mad and you just want to rip on that person so you just unload your anger? Or do you die and forgive that person? Do you die when you're with your buddies and all they do is laugh at the rottenest jokes and everything is to one-up the other guy so you can be the coolest? Do you ever die and just say, I don't want to play this game anymore? It's done. Do you ever die when the church has an opening and you know that you could fill it. But you know, if I have to come on the weekends and I commit to every weekend, I might not have my weekends where I can go fish. Did you ever die to that? That's a hard death. But when you die, resurrection comes after. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Galatians. It's powerful. It's hard because it's asking us to be different people. So I just pray, Father, that you would use this book in the lives of the church. We close it up and it's done probably for a long time from this pulpit. 
and uh, we just ask that what has been said will be a blessing to the people that have, have listened. Thank you for this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.